Okay, guys, we are in lesson four. We're going to start with the section, the second section of our study, which is the things which are. If you remember, our key verse is chapter one, verse 19, in which John is commanded to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. Now, remember, that's basically a key verse to help us understand the whole book because the things which you have seen was chapter 1, his vision of Christ. The things which are, are the letters to the seven churches which we find in chapters 2 and 3. Now, let me just stop for a moment. I'm going to give you some, a little bit of an insight, real briefly, into how we need to approach these letters. First of all, there are some folks out there who believe that these letters represent seven stages of the church age. Now, you say, what's the church age? Well, it's that time from when Jesus ascended to heaven and the church was formed at Pentecost to the time of when the church is taken before the return of Christ. And... So some believe that these seven churches represent seven church ages. I don't believe that. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, because I believe in the fact that the Scripture was written for who? Who was it written for, guys? The people who were reading it. And it's, and it's written in everyday language, and it's written in a way that people can understand it. So when he's writing to seven churches, he's writing to seven churches. So if you notice that map, these are literal places in Asia, Asia Minor as we would call it, at that time. And basically, it would not make sense when he's writing this in A.D. 95... To, to basically say, I'm writing, here's a letter to you, but it isn't about you. It's about some age later on, two or three, four hundred, maybe a thousand years later. So what's going on there is very much with reference to their church. So this, what we're going to read here is, is messages to their church. Now, so basically that's the first thing I want you to see is, is that these are to seven churches at that time. Now, Here's the second thing I want you to think about. What we're going to study has principles and implications for us, right here for you and I. Now, you can take these letters in one of two ways. You can take it as a personal message to you, which you can get principles and stuff from for you, but the primary thing I want you to see is that these are messages for the church. It's specifically lessons for the church. And there are secondary implications for you and I. Do you understand? So everybody understand what I'm talking about? So let's, let's get into it. Let's look, we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 2 of Revelation. So notice with me. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. 
Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But you, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, so let's look at a few things here. First of all, the destination. This letter is addressed to the pastor or messenger of the church. Now remember, we talked about this last week. Remember, he said that the seven stars basically were the seven pastors, seven messengers. The word we use in our English translations, which was, I think, it's a proper translation, but I think it's, there's a better translation, is the word angelos in the Greek. It means messenger. We also translate it angel. So when you read this, you think, you could possibly think that he's writing a letter to an angel. Well, let me just remind you something. An angel is what, folks? It's a spirit being. It's a spiritual being. Angels are probably here, right here in the midst of us right now. Does Jesus, God, need to... How does He communicate with them? Does He send letters to them? No, not at all. See, this is what I'm trying to say to you. It's, it's really the better translation is to the messenger of the church. Now, who, who would be the messenger of the church? Primarily what? A pastor who is communicating. So he's trying to send this letter to the pastor of those churches. Now, I'm going to help you understand a little bit better because you might be saying, well, hold on a second. I don't know that I agree with that. Well, let's wait a minute. We'll see a little bit further here. Notice the description of Christ. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. A couple things we're going to see here about Christ. Number one, he, Christ proclaims himself as having authority over the pastors of the church. Now let me just stop for a moment. Remember he described the seven stars as being the messengers. I would say pastors. He's saying here in his description of Jesus of himself, he's saying he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, let me explain to you, the right hand in the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, was authority. Was a place of authority. So basically, when he says he's holding them in his right hand, he is saying, I have authority over those messengers. So basically, the implication here is he has authority over those pastors. Now, there's an implication there. Because a lot of times in our churches, sometimes in our circle of churches, pastors can set themselves up as being what? Everybody's being silent. They can set themselves up as being what? Yeah, dictators, like they're it. What he's trying to communicate here to this church is, there's somebody else who's in control. There's somebody else who has authority. Who is the one who has authority, folks? Because he holds them in his hand. Christ, okay? So the first thing we see there is his authority in the church and over the pastors. Then he says this, he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. If you go all the way back over 
to verse 20, it says that the seven golden lampstands are what? The seven churches. So here's the point I want you to see. Christ proclaims that He dwells in the midst of His churches. So He's not abstract. He's not just leaving somewhere. He's saying to this church, I'm the one who has authority. I'm the one whose presence is in your midst. Isn't that what the Scripture tells us? When two or three are gathered in His name, what? He's with them. Do you realize, folks, that right now, the presence of Christ is here with us. This is not an abstract, by ourselves time. Now think about that. How many of you have been in intense business meetings? I have. I have moderated intense business meetings. Do you think if people really grasp the reality that when the church gathers, Jesus is in their midst, that may have changed things? Hopefully it would have. Some of you are saying, I don't think so, you know. But the reality is, is that Jesus' presence is in the midst. So he's saying, he's saying to this church, it's me. The one who holds the leaders, who has authority over leadership or authority in the church. And the one whose presence is in the midst. Now, what we're going to see is that there's a basic outline to these letters as we go through them. He's going to describe who it's to. He's going to describe himself. And then there's going to be a commendation. He's going to commend them for something. Usually then it's followed by a a condemnation in which he's going to rebuke them for something. And then he's going to give them an exhortation about what they need to do. So here's, first of all, the commendation. He's going to, first of all, notice with me verse 2. Very key verse here. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Okay, so notice something here. First of all, his knowledge. Christ has an intimate knowledge of the church. Christ has an intimate knowledge of the church. I want you to notice something. Verse 2, every one of the letters begins with this phrase. I know your works. Nothing is hidden from Him. Do you understand? Everything that happens within this body called Kerwinsville Christian Church, Jesus is aware of. He's aware of everything. He's aware, in a personal application, because I said we're talking about churches here, but it's also a personal application, He is aware of everything in your life. Isn't that scary? Nothing is hid from Him. Now, there's, there's a reason for that, because notice something. You say, how, how's that possible? Well, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, who enters into you, folks? Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? God. So God is with you. So God is aware of everything that is going on. There's nothing hidden from Him. Why do we need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? Because we can not, we can kind of forget that conveniently. Have you noticed that? All right, so here's what he's commending them for. First thing, he commends them for their hard work. He says, I know your labor. The labor there has a reflection of hard work. They are intensely laboring there. They're working. 
notice this. He says this. He, com- he commends them because they do not tolerate sin in the church. You cannot bear those who are evil. What it is is basically, let me just stop for a moment. When we talk about dealing with sin, the church, when, when the church is always talking about dealing with sin, it's always talking about dealing with sin within itself. It's not talking about within the culture around it. You may want to write that one down. Whenever we talk about dealing with sin in the New Testament, the issue is the sin within the church. It's not talking about the culture around it. Sometimes I think our churches today are misguided in that our focus is on cleaning up everybody else's act but not our own. First, clean up your own act. Then worry about what's going on around you. You say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, listen to me for a minute. There's a great book out there I think you need to read. It's called Unchristian, in which they surveyed 18 to 40-year-olds. And one of the biggest complaints from the 18 to 40-year-olds about the Christians is this, is they say we're hypocritical. We have a standard for them that we ourselves don't live up to. And you guys know what I'm talking about. The divorce rate is higher in the Christian church than it is anywhere else. Period. So, here's what he's saying. He's commending them because they're doing what they should be doing, and that is dealing with sin in their midst. Dealing with it. He goes on. They are also intolerant of something else. Christ commends them because they have tested and dealt with false teachers. They have tested and dealt with false teachers. You know, in, in our church, we have, we have a two-tiered structure of leadership. We have uh, elders and we have trustees. Trustees handle basically the financial decisions, the well-being of this church as far as the structure, a physical, I mean, it's more of a physical type leadership. We also have elders, which are basically the spiritual guidance for the church. And one of the tasks of elders is to maintain and guard the doctrinal purity of this church. So with that, we, we have the ultimate say in who, who can be a teacher here. Uh, you know, just I think it was probably five, six years ago, I had somebody come here, said they, were, they came to a service, and they came and met with me. We met for three hours. And they, they basically said that they would be willing to teach whenever they wanted to here. But as we got to talking, he, he had a viewpoint that we do not hold to here. And, and he said, I would, I, I'll be more than glad to fill the pulpit for you. And here's what I told him. That'll, that'll never happen. I said, first of all, you don't believe what we believe. And because of that, you can't even be a member here. See, if you don't hold to our doctrine, you can't be a member. All right? So you can't even, you can't even teach here. You can't be a member. So if you can't be a member here, why would I let you be in our pulpit. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Because, oh, I would never teach that, he told me. Well, how many times have you heard that one before? Because here's the thing. Usually when they tell you that they'll never teach it, it usually comes out. So he never came back. What, what, what was I doing? 
Yeah. Protecting the church from false teachers. Do you understand? So we, we've got to be so careful about what we're talking about, what we're doing. Do you understand? We have to protect the doctrine of the church. Now, you know, here's what I'm saying. You say, how far do you take that? Well, let me t- under- explain something to you. There are some issues that are non-negotiable here at this church. Number one is the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. Number two, he was born of a virgin. Number three, he led a sinless life. Number four, he went to the cross to die for our sins. He was buried, raised again on the third day bodily. Not a spirit raised up, but a body raised up. He ascended. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for you and I. One day he is coming back for us. That is non-negotiable. And if you don't hold to those basic truths, I'm sorry. You know, say we're not. You're not going to teach here now. You might have a differing view of some other point of church, whatever. It's okay, but those are the main things that we focus on. And if you don't agree with those main things, it ain't happening. Now, you can still come because we hope we rub off on you. Because you need to be corrected. But you're not going to teach here. And see, this church in Ephesus, what were they doing? They were guarding the purity of their church. Now, why were they doing that? Because Paul, all the way back over in Acts, told them to. Told them to guard their purity. Back in Acts chapter 20. Here's the other thing. Their perseverance. Christ commends them for continuing to persevere in spite of hardship. You're going to see this. This is a common theme throughout this book. The issue of persevering in spite of what life has to throw at you. And believe me, folks, life is going to throw stuff at you. And it's going to throw stuff at you that you're going to question your faith sometimes. God, are you really in control? But see, every time you go through that, every time you persevere, your strength, your faith is strengthened, and you'll hold on. Let's go on now. Here's the rebuke. He does have one problem with him. Look with me at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Here's the issue. Christ rebukes the church for forgetting him in the midst of their labors. You know what, guys? Here's the thing. You know, even, let's look at our church for a moment, because this is basically written to churches, and God is doing some amazing things here, and in a lot of different ways. And there is a momentum happening here at the church right now where we got new folks coming every week, visitors and stuff, and uh, people sharing testimonies about what God is doing in their life and things that he's teaching them and everything. And, and here's the tragedy of what can happen to us if we don't guard our hearts. We could get caught up in everything that's happening and forget the one who's doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We could get caught up in everything that's happening and, and just go with the momentum and just have church and have the activities and, and you know and, and gather all the resources and abilities and what we're doing here and, and you know the band doing the music and, 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 and all of that and forget the very reason why we're doing everything. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Because is it possible to have a great church and not have Jesus in the midst? Is it possible? 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. You say, how is that possible? You just read one that is doing... Look at him. Look at all the things that he's commending them for. Wouldn't you like that to be our church when you look read what's going on there? They're working hard. They're persevering. They're dealing with false prof, prophets. You know, they're, they're having patience. Man, God is... I mean, they're, they're doing it. I mean, they're it. This is a prominent church. But what's the problem? They forgot the reason why they were doing it. They forgot their love for Jesus. See, there's an implication here for the church, isn't there? That why we do what we do is not because it's what we do. It's because we love God. You know, I when I first started listening to Christian music 25 years ago, I listened to a, an artist by the name of Dallas Holm. How many remember Dallas Holm? For those of you, he, the famous song he sang was Rise Again. Beautiful song. One of the songs he wrote was one of the later, last albums that was uh, produced for him. He, he was singing about his music. And, he, and the line was, and, and, and it, it, it stuck with me because I have to re- think about me with my pastoring. He said, I do what I do because I love you. And, and then he said, but sometimes I do what I do because it's what I do. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, here, I do what I do because I love you. I do what I do because you love me. But sometimes I do what I do because it's what I do. This is what this church was doing. They were no longer doing it because of love. Because they loved him or he loved them. It was because they were doing what they were supposed to do. And that's the danger here. And so he rebukes them about it. So then notice with me verses 5 through 6, the exhortation. So what do you do about this? What if you are caught in this mindset where you have lost your first love? What do you do about it? Look with me at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the exhortation. Christ calls for them to remember when they came to faith. So he wants them to go all the way back, really back to to Acts. Acts chapter, I think, 18, 19, 20, in there when, when God was really working in their midst in Ephesus and people were coming to Christ and things were exciting. He said, what do you mean things were exciting? Well, if you remember in Acts, it records of the revival that took place when Jesus was very real in Ephesus through the preaching of Paul, that people who were caught up in sorcery and, and horoscopes and stuff brought all their stuff, and what did they do with it? They burned it. And they said literally the amount of money that was burned up because of all the money that was spent on, the, on their past lives. That's how real Jesus was to them. And he's saying to them, repent, remember from where you've fallen. Remember that love you had for Jesus, so much so that you would do that. Sometimes you're called to do things because you love Him. And he's saying, remember that. So what do you do with it? Do you remember it? And you say, yeah, man, I've come up, I'm, I'm not where I used to be. Here's what you do. He calls them to acknowledge and turn from their sin. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just simply confessing it, it's turning from it. Christ calls them to acknowledge and turn from their sin. Let's go on. Christ calls them to do 
their works out of love for him. Look with me, verse 5 again. Here's what he says. And do the first works. Now, what's the first works? The very same things that they were being commended for, but now they're, they're doing the same things out of a different motivation. They're doing it out of a different motivation. They're doing it out of a love for Jesus, not because it's just what they do. Think about, you know, here's, you know what? We need to occasionally take our church and match it up against this passage. What do you mean by that, George? We've got to look and say, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it because we do the same things every year? Or are we doing what we're doing simply because we love Jesus and we, we want to serve Jesus? So we, that's what he's saying here. Go and do what you did out of love for me. Now here's the warning. And this is pretty profound for you and I here. Christ warns them that unless they repent, they will no longer be useful. In fact, he's a little bit more straightforward than that. I've kind of, kind of toned it down for you and said you're no longer going to be useful. Here's what he says. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know what it says there, basically? Remove your lampstand means, folks, you're going to cease to exist. Let me just stop for a moment. There's a lot of churches around us that have ceased to exist. You ever notice that you go through a community and you see an empty church building? It's owned by somebody now. But the building's still there. The pews are still in it. Now, it's old. Maybe it doesn't even have, maybe it has an outhouse out back or something. Some of them, they cease to exist and there's still people meeting there. But their reason for meeting there is not Jesus anymore. It's because this is where my grandma is and she's buried out back. Jerry Falwell used to say this. Get out of that church. Go find another church. He said, if your grandma could, she'd get up too and go somewhere else. There are churches that are in existence that don't exist. He removed them. When you talk about a lampstand, you're talking about... What are you talking about a lamp? A lampstand is a candlestick. And when you have it out and the, and the candle is lit, it lights up the area around it. It's prominent. But if you cease to be useful, he will take the lampstand away because you no longer are useful in your community. And how many churches do we see that are like that? They're no longer like that. Let's go on. Here's the further. He's going to commend them one more time. Verse 6. He commends them for not embracing those who stressed compromise. The Nicolaitans, let me explain to you what they are. They were a group that... It, that corrupted God's people by suggesting compromise with the culture of the day. They basically were suggesting that it's okay to have Jesus but do everything else that the world is doing as well. And, and there is a lot of that going on today. So, but here's the promise. This is a wonderful promise. This is where we're going to end. We are called to acknowledge what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. Now, to every church, he gives this statement. This is why I'm saying to you that this is written to a church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the what? Churches. So if you are listening today, and you're hearing what's being presented to you from this passage, and God is speaking to you, he's saying, pay attention. Pay attention. 
Now, here's what the promise is. Are you ready for the promise? Those who persevere in their faith are promised eternal life. Those who persevere in their faith are promised eternal life. Now, look at that passage. Look at verse 7 there. To him who overcomes, okay, again, talking about that perseverance in your faith, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Tree of life, that sounds kind of familiar. Anybody have any clue where it is mentioned before in your Bible? In fact, you should have a scripture reading there from Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Let me read it to you. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good from evil. Now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What we know from this, God obviously took the tree of life out of the garden and it's in paradise. Now, this is not the only time we're going to see the tree of life mentioned. We're actually going to see it at the end of this book when we talk about being in heaven and about you and I eating from the tree of life for what? Ever and ever. What does it mean? It's really talking about eternal life. What he's saying here, to him who overcomes, to those who persevere in their faith, he promises eternal life to us. Now let me just stop for a minute. Man, so you mean I've got to work? First of all, who is the one who gives you perseverance for your faith, folks? Holy Spirit. Okay, it's God who perseveres you. But it's a promise to you. You and I have the promise that in spite of what's going on around us, we hold on. There's better coming. Okay, let's close our time in prayer and we've got to get ready for the morning service. And next week, we're going to look at the church at Smyrna.